Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. The Vancouver, B.C.-based band Destroyer released their 13th album at the end of March. It's called Labyrinthitis. Sound and Vision producer Roddy Nick Poor spoke with frontman Dan Behar about Destroyer's new album, their upcoming tour, and what keeps him inspired. Destroyer's sound has evolved over their nearly three-decade career. What started as an experimental, folksy singer-songwriter project... So give us the keys now. Burn this hall of justice down. ...has evolved into pulsing bass lines, ambient brass, and straight-up disco, like what we hear on this latest release. It's a more denser record. It's definitely more chaotic. They're faster songs. That's Dan Behar. And whether an album primarily features an acoustic guitar or an electric boogie, the through line of Destroyer's sound has always been Dan's poetic and often abstract lyricism. The stories in his songs move fast and sometimes don't make sense the first time you hear them, if ever. Nonetheless, Dan usually writes lyrics attached to melodies, and then the band writes their instrumentation around that basic structure. When the vocal is the center point, it kind of gives you a lot of freedom to just make a lot of madness around it. Then came one song off Labyrinthitis, which presented a new approach to songwriting. Here's Dan again. I mean, one example of me writing to the music that they're coming up with is, you know, the second half of a song called June, which has this kind of spoken word, almost rapping bit. Oh, Aggie, your beating heart was a carriage made of gold. How the arithmetic of this guitar melts your heart is beyond me. And when I say beyond me, I mean beyond me. The song was originally three, three and a half minutes long. And John came up with this extended kind of outro that I just really dug and it needed something and it wasn't going to be singing. There was no obvious kind of verse, chorus, like structure to it. It was just like this collapsing weird groove. And so I just did a few takes of the spoken word stuff and it kind of became like the feature of the song, you know. That was me definitely feeding off all, all the music that was already in there. Oh, and there's the part, you mentioned the hydrogen bomb and your voice gets pitched down. Part of that was nervousness. I think I really embraced it because I'd never done anything that was just kind of spoken word like that before. And I didn't really know how long these series of strange images could hold someone's attention. So I thought the more razzle-dazzle we added to the vocals, the better. And then I especially liked how the vocals got, aside from the kind of stuttering Max Headroom stuff, I liked how <laughs> with the pitching down, they started kind of winding down, you know, like in 2001, where Hal, you know, he's slowly being unplugged, just slowly killed, and his voice is like... If you'd like to hear it, I can sing it for you. Yes, I'd like to hear it, Hal. Gets lower and lower and deeper until it's just a dead robot. And I like that. 
low-born Madonna with her typewriters in the rain clacking their misfortunes. Speech, speech. A figure of lights trapped inside your crown. Where'd you go? And while we're on the subject of psychotic passwords. Going back up to the opening track, It's in Your Heart Now, a lot more ambient than June, right? A lot more of a soft introduction to the album. It's in your heart now. And it's kind of a mantra throughout that song, It's in Your Heart Now. Like, how does that set the table for all of the album? I mean, that song stands out to me, and it's, you know, very dreamy. It's dense, there's lots going on in it, and the vocal is kind of more plaintive and intimate. Most of the other songs are sung from the standpoint of, like, a petty villain, lots of old man gags, crude jokes, the guy who walks up to children playing in the snow and tries to insult them, tell just someone... Like an old man who wants children to cry when they're at, at their most happy. I feel like the song, Eat the Wine, Drink the Bread, the first line is dog language. Unfounded accusations, rough, rough, goes the beagle to the terrier. I feel like rough, rough, those kind of things are going to take up more and more space and destroy our world. You know, it'll eventually just be sounds. I don't know, it's all really new. I don't associate that with destroyer music at all, but it must be me bracing to turn 50 this year. Any kind of self-censorship or pride in my craft has evaporated, and it's left this weird, brittle residue of bits and words that I spew out here and there. It's such beautiful, like, poetic music, and again, it's like really upbeat, and like that being like the character you're assuming. It feels contradictory, but also like, it also feels strangely appropriate in some sense. There's always been that kind of push and pull between the singer and destroyer and the music. I want to talk about the one song that does not have words. It's also the title track, Labyrinthitis. It's just this solemn piano with the ambient sounds of like a park with birds and the children. So I'm wondering how that one came together and what themes those are hitting at. I'm just trying to get this tradition going of people who play in Destroyer to come up with instrumental tracks that I can then call the title track. I think I heard Labyrinthitis about eight hours before the album got mastered. <laughs> and when I did hear it, it's like, oh, that's amazing. And it is kind of like a contemplative moment in the middle of the record for a record that's not really that contemplative. This record is kind of relentless from beginning to end until you have the last song, which really is acts more like a coda or like you stepping out of the Thunderdome at dawn, you know? To say, you get up, you stand up, you pull your head on out of nooses. It kind of felt like a return to form to some of your early work, too. I mean, some people thought that song was 20 years old when they heard it. Usually when I pick up a guitar, it's like a reminder of 
some kind of essential part of myself, like where I came from with all this, which is just like someone who strums and sings ditties, you know, as hard as I try to escape that. And it's, you know, it's like a solemn song, but it also has a bit of a sing-along vibe towards the end. That moves to LA, an explosion is worse, a hundred million words, and that is maybe too many words to say. I'm curious too, like 30 years or almost 30 years is a long time. I'm curious how like you feel that you've changed just like as a human being over that time. I mean, didn't Destroyer cover practically my entire adult life? <laughs> In the last couple of years, I feel like I've just, for the sake of comforting myself in crazy troubled times, I feel like I've really gone back to rewatching all the movies that I've seen a thousand times from 30 or 40 years ago, or rereading books, really doubling down on all the stuff that, you know, I got off on in the early days, films and books and things like that seem to be still like the real meat in Destroyer as far as what gets me off uh, and what kind of worlds I want to dive into. Because I, I think that nobody's really quite doing what you're doing with your voice and your words. And I think that's what helps Destroyer stand out a lot. And I'm wondering if someone is like struggling to embrace their own style as like a lyricist or if they're embarrassed what helps you, I guess, like write the most authentic images and like word salad and just like put it out there without trying to be accessible or whatever? I mean, I just like when I get emotional, when my heart races, I know I'm onto something. And it's usually in little bursts because that's how I write. I would say I would write with the words and the melodies at the same time. Like these phrases would come with melodies attached, which was like a little light that would go off and tell me, oh, this is worthy of a song if you can stumble onto some kind of process like that. You are going on tour. Like, what do you miss the most about being on the road? What are you, like, most looking forward to about this? I'm excited to play these songs. It's weird. Usually I feel like you start winding down in middle age. But for me, I think it's just in the last few years where it kind of invigorates me even on stage, you know, I don't reach out to the audience. Sometimes I turn my back on them. A lot of times my eyes are closed, usually because I'm just trying to hear myself and like focus on what I'm doing. But it doesn't mean I don't care. I think sometimes that gets taken for not caring or for being blasé. On stage, I'm not blasé at all. I'm like jittery as hell and wound up. Maybe engaged in the Pacific Northwest looks different than engaged in, um, I don't know, Orange County or something. Dan, thanks for taking the time to talk to me about Elaborateitis and your upcoming tour and just being inspired and changing as a human being through it all. <laughs> all right. That was KXP's Roddy Nick Poor talking with Dan Behar of the band Destroyer. Destroyer is playing at Seattle's Neptune Theater on April 23rd. That 
Sound and Vision, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, and consider giving a one-time $20 donation to help support this show at kexp.org slash sound. Thanks for listening.